How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer just to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to uh, focus on the study of God's Word and to put aside all the distractions and cares and worries and focus on uh, what the Word has to teach us tonight. Uh, After a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight to study your word, that your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and it is in the light of your word that we see light, that your word discloses to us in a unique fashion all that we need to know about spiritual life and how to think about all the issues that we face in life so that we can handle them from a divine viewpoint perspective. Now, Father, as we study tonight, we pray that you'd help us to not only understand what the word teaches, but the implications and principles that we find here that can be of an encouragement to us in our own spiritual life and spiritual walk today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Revelation chapter 11, but before we get there, we need to take a few moments just to pay homage to St. Patty. Today is St. Patrick's Day, and the Catholics have stolen St. Patrick, and they ought not because he wasn't a Roman Catholic. He was a Celtic Christian, and he lived at a time before there were any divisions uh, within uh, Christianity. His dates are the 5th century. He is born about 415, which if you remember your church history, and I'm sure you all do, that that is... um, That is about the time that Constantine declared or legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire, 10 years before the Council of Nicaea in 425. So this is very early in Christianity. It was the Council of Nicaea that the early church first clearly articulated the relationship between the eternality of Jesus and the eternality of the Father, that Jesus was fully God, true God of true God, and that he shared the same essence as the Father. And those of you who sat through the History of Doctrine class last year remember that that doesn't mean that they didn't believe in this before, but it was how to clearly and precisely articulate the doctrine of the eternality and the deity of Christ so that you didn't you preserve the unity of the Godhead, you uh, preserve the Trinity, and could articulate the Trinity in such a way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were equal in essence, though distinct in personality. That comes out of the Council of Nicaea. So this is very early. When he's 16 years old, in 431, he was captured by Irish pirates and taken as a slave to Ireland. And there probably were a few slaves in North America in the early years of this country that had it as bad as he did, but very few. 
I mean, they were just, it was a horrible situation. He was to uh, watch the cattle, and he was basically left out in the out of doors with very little shelter, uh, would go long periods of time without food, without uh, water, uh, with very little to protect him from the elements. And after a period of about six years of this kind of slavery, he was able to escape. But God used that time period, as he does any kind of adversity in our lives, to cause Patrick to focus on what really matters in life. He, as he was raised in a Christian home in Britain, in south southwestern Britain at that time. It was still Roman, and his parents were... Uh, Christians of a Celtic kind of Christianity that was dominant in uh, in England at that time. And so he was a, a believer, but he wasn't very committed. He was just what we would call today a nominal believer. But that time when he was a slave, he realized how important it was, and he spent his time praying, and he said he p- would pray a hundred times during the day and maybe just a little bit less at night. And so it was a time that really focused him spiritually. And he escaped from uh, slavery, um, made it 200 miles to the coast, where he was able to uh, gain passage on a trading vessel that eventually returned him home. Because of his uh, renewed interest in his relationship with God and the importance of the gospel, he entered a monastery for training. That's what you did in those days. That was the only vehicle for any kind of of biblical training, similar to what we would say of a seminary today. And after another four or five years there, he believed that God wanted him to take the gospel to Ireland. And so he went to Ireland, and from all the stories that I've read, he had tremendous courage, and there were many times as he faced the Druid priests who were, who were really the established hierarchy there. They, were, they, they controlled all of the learning. They controlled the mystical religious practices. They're the ones that was virtually the state religion, and they were tied in with the local uh, Irish chieftains and, and kings. And it was Patrick who would challenge them. And Patrick, though he wasn't the first to bring the gospel to Ireland, there was one other that preceded him who was uh, martyred very quickly after he first arrived. So for all practical effects, uh, Patrick was the first one there. And he had a tremendous number of converts. And in the map... You see Ireland over on the left, and there's a date there in the 400s. That's during the time that Ireland was there. And he's credited with all kinds of silly things like chasing the snakes out of Ireland and all this other stuff. But if you follow that arrow, the arrow goes north, a little bit west of north from Ireland up towards Scotland. And up there was an island called Iona. And there you had one of the converts of of, um, of Patrick. Uh, named Columba, and they established um, a mission there, a monastery there, and that became the center of light and hope. That was the seminary of its day that sent out, that trained men and sent out missionaries with the gospel, not only to back to Ireland and to Scotland and into England, but also, as you see, these other lines that are there, they sent missionaries to Denmark 
and to Sweden and to the other Scandinavian countries. And this is at the time of the rise of the groups that became known as the, as the Vikings. So uh, a number of years ago, I think about 10 years ago, Thomas Cahill wrote a book called How the Irish Saved Civiliza- Civilization. And it's a good book. He doesn't do as good a job. I don't think he can. He's a Roman Catholic, so he doesn't understand that Patrick was not a Roman Catholic. Uh, but he does a pretty good job with the history that, that goes into play there, showing that this path of Christianity from Patrick to Ireland to Scotland and back down through these missionaries were a key element in preserving civilization and the light of civilization through the preaching of the gospel and the spread of Christianity in the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries. And Patrick really stands at the fountainhead of that. He would he would be the Lewis Berry Chafer of his day in some sense, or the, or the Dwight Moody of his day. He had a, a phenomenal impact that extended down through generations. Now, as Christianity spread from the north of... Uh, uh, from the north in Scotland, south down into what is now England, it met the incursion of a Roman form of Christianity by the end of the uh, 6th century and into the 7th century. Uh, depending on the historian you read, many will uh, benchmark 600 as the beginning of Roman Catholicism. This is when Gregory the Great became the the Pope, even though he did not like to be called a Pope. He was the first Bishop of Rome to really function as the authority over all of the church. He would call up armies to defeat the invading Huns and barbarians, and he, he was a great administrator organizing uh, uh, Christendom, so many would mark that as the beginning of Roman Christianity. And Roman Christianity over the next couple of hundred years was coming up from the south. Celtic Christianity, which was more biblical in its, in its foundation and less ritualistic, was coming down from the south. But the, um, the Roman Catholic form won out. And I believe that was at the Peace of Westphalia, and so everything turned over to a Roman form. This had to do with when you observed Easter, uh, worship of Mary, and various other things that came in at that time that had not been a part of Celtic Christianity. So it's a great Christian day. It was in the 8th century that uh, a special day, uh, March the 17th, was set aside to remember Patrick. And by then, of course, you're dealing with full-blown uh, Roman uh, Catholicism, and that that shaped the you know much of how modern civilization looks at Patrick. But he was a sound um, evangelist and missionary, and he stood up against you know in in the face of uh, certain death if if he failed and trusted God in tremendous ways. So there's a great story there in uh, Patrick and the spread of the gospel and the spread of civilization in Western Europe, which comes out of the fountainhead of the Bible. Okay, now, we're studying Revelation. This is our second Tuesday night where we are 
studying Revelation because this has been the series that has that, that I've been teaching on Sunday morning for the last three or four years, and I switched Sunday morning, the Sunday morning series to Tuesday night and the Tuesday night series on on First Kings to Sunday morning. I got a couple of questions about that at the conference. People who said, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I turned in on Sunday morning, and all of a sudden it was Kings." And not Revelation. Where do I find Revelation? Where do I find, or they were watching on Tuesday night for Kings, and now where do I find, uh, where do I find Kings? So we just switched those, uh, for several reasons, but you haven't fallen asleep and awakened on Sunday morning. We're on Tuesday night, and we're in Revelation chapter 11. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, and we're in verse 3. And the question that we're addressing is the identification of these two witnesses that come on the scene in Revelation chapter 11. And I believe from uh, my studies of the chronology in Revelation that the two witnesses appear early in Revelation in the first half of the, of the book of, Revel, of the uh, tribulation, not the second half. And one of the reasons I do that, if you... Uh, look down to verse 10, preview of coming attractions. There is th- These two witnesses will be martyred, and all around the world, the earth dwellers are going to have a party to celebrate the death of these two. It's, it's like a three-day Christmas holiday, and they're going to exchange gifts, and they're going to uh, have a, just a tremendous time celebrating the fact that these two prophets are dead. Now, this is at the end of a period of time that is defined in uh, verse 3 as 1,260 days, 1,260 days. Now, if that 1,260-day period is at the end of the tribulation, and 1,260 days after the midpoint of the tribulation is going to find us where? Smack dab in the middle of the most incredible war conflagration on, in history, which is the military campaign of Armageddon. Now, when we get down to Revelation 19, we'll learn that the battle of Armageddon really isn't a battle. The word there in the Greek has to do with a military campaign, and it would be... Uh, more on the on the order of let's say the battle for Guadalcanal, which lasted about seven months during uh, World War II, started in August and uh, lasted until they finally secured the island about uh, February of, of the next year. So it's going to be a lengthy military campaign. It's not just um, not just one battle, and there are various stages to uh, the campaign of Armageddon. So if you go 1,260 days after the midpoint of the tribulation, Jerusalem is under attack. The armies of the Antichrist are there. A huge battle. Hundreds of thousands of people are being slaughtered. They're not going to be taking three days off to have a drunken celebration over their victory over these, these, the death of these two prophets. It doesn't fit with that kind of a time scenario. So the only place it really does fit 
is to put this 1,260 days into the first half of the tribulation period. They come at the beginning, at the time that is defined in verse 2, as the time when the outer courtyard and the city, the holy city, which is Jerusalem, have been given to the Gentiles. What's excluded in verse 1 is the holy of holies, the bronze altar, the inner sanctum. That does come under Gentile domination in the second half of the tribulation when the Antichrist sets up his image there. So this is dealing with the first half of the of the um, tribulation period. They, these two witnesses show up. They're clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth was the typical garment worn by a by someone who is mourning something, and a prophet would sometimes put on sackcloth, which uh, was just a, a sort of made out of goat's hair, and it was a real rough, uncomfortable fabric and would make you weep when you would move, that kind of a thing. So they bring on mourning, symbolize mourning. And the idea was that they're mourning the spiritual condition of Israel, that they are still in apostasy. They've rejected Jesus as Messiah and continue to reject Jesus as Messiah. And so their dress brings attention to them and to their message. Then in verse 4, we read that they are compared by a metaphor. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And this imagery of these two olive trees and lampstands comes right out of Zechariah chapter 4. And in Zechariah chapter 4, these two olive trees were... Uh, depicted two of the key leaders in Israel. Zerubbabel, who was the leader who brought the Jews back from Babylon in about 536 B.C., and Joshua the high priest. And they were the ones who had restored the sacrifices to the Temple Mount. And they were leading the people and instigating the rebuilding of the temple which had fallen on hard times, and that's part of what Zechariah is dealing with, is the need by, by 520 to kick, uh, kick them in the rear, so to speak, get them motivated again to rebuild, finish rebuilding the temple. And so the issue is the empowerment, though. That's the point of comparison in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, nor by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, literally the Lord of the armies. Hosts is just an antiquated English word that refers to a military organization, an army. So this is the Lord of the armies referring to the Lord as in his sovereign power over the universe and that it's by his power through the Holy Spirit who will empower Zerubbabel and Joshua to rebuild uh, to rebuild the temple. And they are compared in Revelation 11 for these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And the question comes up, so exactly who they are. If you read ahead into verses 5 and 6, they have the same kind of power. They perform the same kind of of, uh, miracles that characterize Elijah and Elisha. 
I mean Elijah and Moses. So many think that it's Elijah and Moses. Some earlier thought that it was Elijah and uh, Enoch, and that was a one popular alternative. And last time I introduced this, but that was a couple of weeks ago, and we've all been distracted with the conference, so I just want to work through this, these passages one more time uh, to set up where we're going. Now, the first thing we have to understand is that there is something in the Bible that is that's related to contingency, real contingency in human history based on human volition, human decision-making, that God is so great in his sovereignty that his plan is broad enough that he can bring about his purposes whether man chooses to do A or B. And the best illustration I ever heard of this that really got me thinking about this was I was listening to Charlie Clough's Framework Series years and years ago, and he made a comment about God's creation, that he, that God included enough flexibility in all of his creation, in the inanimate creation, in, 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 in animals, in man, to handle the chaos that was introduced by sin. And that is a profound observation. Because when sin entered in, you had changes that came to our physiology, biology, to the physical laws of the universe, but it didn't destroy the universe. So God built that flexibility in. So in, in his plan, there's flexibility and there's room to maneuver based on human volition. But God is still ultimately the one who moves things to their final end. Because he is omniscient, this means that God knows all of the knowable. He knows what would happen if other conditions occurred, what might have happened if you had uh, not gone to work today, what could have happened if you'd gone to another college instead of the one you went to, what might have happened if you had married somebody other than the person you married. God knows all of those different um, philosophers call them counterfactuals. We'll just call them variables. And he knows what will take place. We see this in passages like Matthew 11:23, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. See, God knows what would have happened if other conditions had, ta- had actually occurred. Now, the reason that is important is because in the first advent of Christ, there was a huge contingency. And that contingency was going to be dependent on the volition of the people in Israel, whether or not they would embrace Jesus as their Messiah or whether they would reject him as their Messiah. And it's a real choice. Now, God in his omniscience knows what their choice is going to be. But he doesn't, he's not playing dice with his omniscience. And I think there are some people who said, okay, well, because God knew they weren't going to take it, weren't going to accept Jesus as a Messiah, then when he sent John the Baptist, he, he could have been, but he really wasn't Elijah. He just could have been. 
See, I think that's playing fast and loose with God's omniscience because that means it wasn't a real contingency. But it's a real offer of the kingdom and a real offer of Jesus as Messiah. And John the Baptist came preaching the gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying if you, to Israel, if you will turn to God, then the kingdom's going to come right now. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom being the messianic kingdom or what we refer to as the millennial kingdom. He sent out his disciples in the first two-thirds of his ministry with that same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was a genuine offer of the kingdom. When Israel rejected him, that offer was rescinded and postponed until the end of time. But when we look at these passages that we look at related to John the Baptist and Elijah, they relate to that that real, genuine, but contingent offer of the kingdom. Because if they had accepted Jesus as Messiah to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, Elijah had to precede him. Elijah had to be the messenger that prepared the way of the Lord. And that's what we see in our passage. Now, the way this is normally taught, I just want to put this chart up here. Here's a timeline. The Old Testament period up to the church age of tribulation and then the millennium. Elijah lived in the Old Testament about in the middle of the ninth century BC. He dies and he's taken, or he actually doesn't die. He's taken to heaven in a fiery chariot in 2 Kings chapter 2. Malachi in the last chapter of the Old Testament predicts that the Elijah must come as my messenger, Malachi 3.1, come preceding the Messiah, and that he will restore all things, Malachi chapter 4. So Malachi looks forward to this, that there will be this um, uh, messenger that comes. We saw last time in uh, Luke 1 that um, Gabriel told Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, that John the Baptist would go forth in the spirit and power, which is a hendiadus, the, the spiritual power of Elijah. Elijah appeared with Moses and Jesus to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and <clears throat> yet, as we'll see, he, so he's distinct from John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not Elijah, and yet in Luke one seven he said to be in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus said in Matthew eleven four in a very important passage says John himself is present tense. John is Elijah. Jesus said that after I a couple, three weeks ago when I was working through this and I called Tommy Ice up. And I said, what do you think about this? About the fifth time I said, Tommy, it says, John is Elijah. He said, wait a minute, John is Elijah? I said, yeah. See, we all get caught up in our frameworks, and we don't necessarily hear what the Scripture says the first ten times somebody states it to us. John is Elijah. He said, I I see what you're saying. He said, I think my chart's wrong. This is his chart. (laughs) 
So we're kind of working through this this whole contingency issues. It's what's at the heart of this. So then we have the cross and the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the church age, and then the rapture of the church. And then the general view is, based on Malachi 4.5, saying that Elijah must appear before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that this is going to be actual resurrected, resuscitated Elijah who walks around the earth during the tribulation. And I've heard that from various people all my life, and you have too. And that's a possibility. I'm, I'm just not sure the Scripture makes it that clear because of this issue with John the Baptist, and so we'll have to look at that uh, later. Okay, I just want to put this chart up there. That's sort of the normal way of teaching this. Now let's go through these passages brief, quickly because we covered them the last time. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger. That's John the Baptist. Clearly quoted, applied to John the Baptist in Luke 1. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? Verse 2 is first or second advent. Who can endure the day of his coming? That's second advent. That's the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. Okay, so the first half of verse 1 is really talking about the first advent, the suddenly coming to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. That's really second coming. Okay, so once again, we have a passage like we have in Isaiah 11 where we have a verse that that combines, because of the Old Testament prophet's perspective, both first advent and second advent material because they didn't perceive the rejection of Israel. How real and contingent could the offer of the kingdom have been if the Old Testament prophets had predicted their rejection of the offer? That's why the church isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. If the Old Testament prophets had indicated the intercalation between the first advent and the second advent, then it would not have been a legitimate offer to Israel of the kingdom. But it's a legitimate offer, and they chose to reject it. In Malachi 4.5, God says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That terminology, great and terrible day of the Lord, refers to the end, uh, the end battle, the campaign of Armageddon, the, the final judgments at the end of the tribulation period. But what's interesting to watch here, and we'll come back to this, is what happens what he says in that next verse, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I love it when the, every now and then when you're in the pulpit and you're teaching, you see something you haven't seen before. So I'm going to have to check this out. It has often been stated. No, I don't have it there. It's often been stated that the he in verse 6 is talking about Elijah. But I just noticed that the nearest noun antecedent to he is what? It's the Lord. And, you know, I'd raise a similar question to this with Dr. Whitcomb in working through this passage several 
couple of months ago because he kept going to this passage as a support for his view that it's the two prophets that restore the sacrificial system at the beginning of the tribulation period. And I had trouble with that and was asking him questions, and I thought, Restoring the hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the children is new covenant terminology. That's something Messiah does. That's not something that Elijah does. So the, I think the last time I taught this class, the um, thing that I said was maybe it's an inceptive idea in this verb. That is, he will begin to restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. Well, I think Jesus uses this to refer to Elijah, so maybe I'm, the he there really does refer to Elijah. That's just too much medication probably. I'll bring Bruce. Too many antibiotics. Okay, then we come to Luke 1. We'll come back to Malachi 4 in a minute. Then we come to Luke 1. This is Gabriel giving the um, announcement to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, concerning his son, and saying that he will turn, that is, he, John the Baptist, will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. That's that same terminology that we have in the term restore in Malachi 4.6. Of course, it's in Greek, but it's the same terminology, that whole shuv terminology that you have in in the Hebrew of, of Deuteronomy, people need to turn to God. Even today in Israel, if a secular Jew becomes an observant Jew, he, it's called doing shuva. He's turning back to God. So John the Baptist will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Luke one seventeen. it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. So there, again, it is, um, that that's clearly relates it to Elijah, not, not the Lord. That it's Elijah who turns the hearts of the fathers back to the children. So I think that's got to be an inceptive thing. Uh, it begins to do that because it's the Messiah who actually does it with the bringing in of the kingdom. And I'll, I'll show you that in a passage uh, in Acts 3 in just a minute. So in Matthew 11, Jesus says, and he's talking about John the Baptist, he says, what did you go out to see in the wilderness? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That's a quote from Malachi 3.1, also stated in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So he connects the messenger. He says, John is that messenger. Well, who's the messenger in context in Malachi 3? If you're just reading Malachi 3, the messenger in Malachi 3 is Elijah in Malachi 4. You can't get away from that. That's the original intended meaning of Malachi. You can't change, whatever the New Testament does in applying it, you can't change that original meaning. Verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. That means that as John and Jesus and the disciples were announcing the kingdom of heaven, 
they were attacked. It was rejected. They were um, being ridiculed. The disciples were uh, being rejected. Eventually, Jesus is rejected and accused of doing everything through the power of Beelzebul. Um, violent men take it by force. Verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are, and here's the contingency, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, you couldn't translate it any better. The Greek has a clear statement of the of the proper noun, the, the uh, pronoun, uh, referential pronoun to himself, is Esten. Elijah, clear statement. Jesus says John is Elijah. He doesn't say John was Elijah. He he says John could have been Elijah. He says John is Elijah who was to come. That's as clear a statement as it can possibly be. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is if John could be Elijah, then when the Old Testament says Elijah must come, it's using Elijah metaphorically and not literally. Someone like Elijah, an El- someone who is a counterpart to Elijah, like Elisha was, who received a, a double portion of Elisha's spirit. So it's somebody who goes forth like Elijah, who has the same kind of ministry. Because if the kingdom had come, if the Jews had accepted Jesus and the kingdom had come, then Malachi 4 would have been fulfilled in Elijah, in, in John the Baptist. So that means that the fulfillment of the Malachi 4 passage does not have to be a literally resurrected Elijah. Does that make sense? So it could be. A lot of people want to want to, want to um, identify uh, one of them as Elijah, but I don't think it's it's necessary. Uh, and it's interesting. Let me back up the contingency passage I went to earlier. Malachi, um, in Matthew eleven twenty three is in that same chapter that we're talking about. So there's this element of contingency running through Matthew eleven anyway. Then in Matthew seventeen. Matthew 17, we have the story of the Mount of Transfiguration where John takes, um, I mean, Jesus takes Peter and James and John with him up on top of this hilltop, this mountain, and there's two or three different places in Israel and Galilee where they think this was. The Catholics had their Mount of Transfiguration. The um, Protestants, I think, think it was Mount Tabor. But there's... Who knows? He goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Elijah and Moses appear with him, and they're in glorified bodies. Now, that's important to understand because even though Moses went through physical death, as described in Deuteronomy 33, goes up onto the Pisgah Ridge up on Mount Nebo, God shows him all of the land, and then it says, and he died. From Jude 9, verse 9, Somebody one time asked me when I had a, was typing up their notes, and I had said Jude 9. They said, what chapter? Jude has one chapter. Jude 9, verse 9, says that uh, Michael the archangel argued and fought with Satan over the physical body of Moses after he died. So Moses went through physical death. Now he comes back in a... Uh, 
interim body glorified body. Remember, it's not it's not a resurrection body because no the first fruits of resurrection the first fruit hasn't resurrected yet. Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, so they're, they're, they don't have the resurrection bodies. But Moses is back. He did die physically. Elijah's with him, but Elijah didn't die physically. Elijah was taken in his, he, he sort of went through this transition, which would necessarily entail a replacement of his, of his body. Now, people often argue that based on Hebrews 9.27, that Enoch, who uh, didn't die physically either, Enoch and, and Elijah have to come back because they didn't see death. So, and everybody has to die. Hebrews 9.27 says, uh, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. Well, those guys didn't die. So therefore they have to come back because every, according to that verse, everybody has to die. That's not what that verse says. That verse is talking under normal conditions, but there's a lot of folks who aren't going to die physically, and that's the rapture generation. They won't die physically. And there's a lot of other folks who died twice, not once. Lazarus died twice. Tabitha Dorcas died twice. All of those people that got raised from their graves when Jesus was crucified, as recorded in Matthew there was a host of people who came out of their graves, walked around the streets of Jerusalem, and bore witness to their family members and people they knew in Jerusalem of Jesus as the Messiah. That must have been pretty bizarre. But they did, and then they died again physically. So there's a lot of people who've died twice. There's some people who didn't die once. There's a whole generation that won't die physically at all. So don't... Put more weight on Hebrews 9:27 than than it can bear. So we have Elijah and Moses appearing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now a lot of people say, "See that proves that they're going to be the precursors announcing Jesus," but it didn't say that anywhere in Matthew Matthew 17. At the end, afterwards, Jesus has a teaching moment with his disciples, and they asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore. There's that word that relates to turning, restore all things. Now, the Greek word here is a verb. He will restore all things. Apokathistemi means to reestablish or restore. And this is a term for restoring the kingdom to to Israel. The land, everything was taken from them, and now everything will be given back. It's the fulfillment of all of the promises and and the... Covenant, the promises of covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, land covenant, new covenant, all that comes together at the second coming. Elijah's coming first will restore all things. And then the noun form is apocatastasis. And I don't think I put this on a slide, but I ran across this the other day that is a fascinating little picture, and this is in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, down in verse 
21. Peter reaches the, the focal point of his message, and he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted. There's that idea of turn. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That phrase, times of refreshing, is a millennial term. He's addressing Jews in Jerusalem. This is a still an offer of the kingdom after the ascension. In that transition period from the day of Pentecost till the destruction of Jerusalem, technically, the nation could have turned back to God, and the kingdom could have come in that. That contingency was still there. He's offering the kingdom. Times of refreshing can come in. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, and then look at verse 21, whom heaven must receive, that's the ascension and his current session at the right hand of the Father, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. That's the, that's the noun form, apocatastasis, that we're talking about here in restoration. Uh, so Jesus is in heaven until the times of the restoration of all things. That's the millennial kingdom, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now what's interesting is that if you think about the chronology, before the time, the period of time, that's the time of restoration, before the millennial kingdom, right before it is when Jesus comes back to establish it, to inaugurate the, the, the kingdom. What precedes that is a message to call the people to turn back to God so that the time of restoration can come. Now, who's proclaiming that message of restoration? Elijah. It's Jesus who comes to fulfill that and establish his kingdom. So you have Elijah coming first, preceding the great and terrible day of the Lord, when the kingdom is established and the time of restoration uh, comes in. That's how it all unfolds. So it connects this together that Elijah restoring all things is a term that is related to uh, his role in bringing about the final culmination of the age of Israel and the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. It is not, all respect to Dr. Whitcomb, for those of you who heard him last year at pre-trib, it is not the restoration of the sacrificial system in Jerusalem at the beginning of the tribulation period. And those of you who weren't there, I mean, that just caused a lot of consternation and confusion with people. So um, uh, it's, I've, I've had to spend a lot of time trying to work through that because when you're dealing with somebody of Dr. Whitcomb's stature, you have to make sure your T's are crossed and I's dotted. So in Matthew 17:12, then Jesus comes along and says, But I say to you that Elijah has come already. See, that's tantamount to his statement earlier in Matthew 11 that John is Elijah. He says Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at, at their hands. 
Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist would, would have fulfilled that role of Elijah. That means that whoever is there in the, in the tribulation period doesn't have to be a resurrected, resuscitated Elijah. Neither does it have to be a resurrected, uh, resuscitated Moses or a resurrected, resuscitated Enoch. And then we have the conundrum of John 121 where they asked John the Baptist, the Pharisee said, who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. Because he was John the Baptist. But he's coming in the ministry of Elijah. So, when it comes to identifying the two witnesses, first of all, the, for the early part of church history, people like Tertullian, uh, Tertullian, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, other early church fathers, identified the two witnesses as Enoch and Elijah because they didn't die physically. Enoch was the one, of course, who uh, his son was the oldest uh, Old Testament uh, person lived to the oldest age, 970 years. But Enoch died. But but he died. But his son died before he did, because even though Enoch only lived 365 years on the earth, he walked with God. He didn't die. He just walked, one day walked with God, and he was not. He just walked right into paradise with God. Now. <clears throat> That's one option. I don't think it's Enoch or anything related to Enoch because Enoch was before Abraham. And the role of these two witnesses has to do with Israel because everything in Revelation has to do with the restoration of the kingdom to Israel and these final judgments at the end of the tribulation period and Daniel's 70th week. So Enoch is, is not a good option. Second option people have is Moses, of course, because Moses died mysteriously all by himself up on Mount Nebo. And um, so they often think of him uh, as he's the great prophet of, of Israel. And so he's an option. Uh, Elijah is the third option because he departed. He didn't die physically, but departed in a uh, fiery chariot. And so most people that you read will tell you that it is Moses and Elijah. And they base that on the fact that they appeared at the Mount of Transfiguration and that uh, the miracles that are mentioned in verses 5 and 6 are similar to those of Moses and Elijah. The two witnesses will call down fire from heaven and Elijah called down fire from heaven in 1 Kings 18. They'll shut off rain. Elijah shut off rain in 1 Kings 17.1. They'll turn water into blood. Moses turned water into blood and, and the, among the plagues of Egypt in Exodus chapter 7 through 11. So in conclusion, in terms of identifying them, what we have to say is that while it's possible that they could be a resurrected or resuscitated Elijah and Moses, which if they are resurrected and resuscitated, it, it would be Elijah and Moses. But th- th- that's not necessary. It could be two Jews that are just like John the Baptist, minister and function in the same way with the same power as Moses and, and Elijah. Now we get into 
verse 5, and we read, If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Now, there's a similar event in 2 Kings chapter 1. Ahaz has died, and his son Ahaziah has had an accident. He's been in the upper room, which I take to be the outhouse, and he's fallen through the lattice, and I'm not exactly sure what that is. But he is terribly injured, and he is dying, and so he sends his men to look for Elijah. They look for him, and Elijah actually sends him to, to, um, to Baal, and Elijah interrupts him and sends him back and says, no, he's not going to get healed. And when he comes back, Ahaziah's all upset. Who was, who told you that? They described how he was dressed. Oh, that's Elijah. He troubled my father. He troubled me too. So he sent a captain of his army to get Elijah. And Elijah comes, he comes up to Elijah and he's trying to capture him and take him back to Ahaziah. And Elijah calls on fire from heaven to come down and wipe out the whole uh, company of men that he brought with him to arrest him. So it's that same idea, bringing fire from heaven, except here this fire is going to come out of their mouth and devour their enemies, so that if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These guys are going to be deadly for three and a half years, and they are going to be the opposition in chief against the Antichrist. Verse 6, they have the power to shut up the sky like Elijah did in 1 Kings 17.1. They have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, one note on their prophesying. The essence of prophecy in the Old Testament is that the prophet represents the court of heaven, God, and the Mosaic law, which is the law code, and they are the... um, prosecutors from the Supreme Court of Heaven challenging and indicting the people for their disobedience to the law. That's what they're going to be doing. They are bringing the legal charge against the earth dwellers, the the, uh, unbelievers during the tribulation period, how they have rejected God time and time and time again, and God is justified in bringing this judgment against uh, fallen, unbelieving Mankind. Verse 7, we read, when they finish their testimony, the beast, this is our first mention of the beast. Beast is mentioned 35 times. It's a Greek word, therion, which refers to a ravenous, violent carnival, the most violent of animals. This isn't just a wild animal. This is a carnivorous, violent, destructive uh, animal. It comes up out of the abyss. Now, The abyss is where the demons have been imprisoned. Uh, Satan later will be chained in the abyss. And what is pictured here is that the Antichrist is empowered by uh, a demon from the abyss. He's not empowered by, uh, he's not Satan, but he is empowered uh, by Satan. And he will make war with them, that is, with the two witnesses, overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically, that's a bad translation. The Greek word there is a word we've run into in other passages, pneumatikos. It is spiritually. It's used allegorically. Uh, Jerusalem is called Sodom, 
and Egypt. And whenever the Bible has an allegorical interpretation, it always identifies it. Um, Isaiah referred to Jerusalem as being like Sodom because of their moral perversion. In Isaiah 1, verse 9 and following, Ezekiel called them Sodom because of their perversion in Ezekiel 16:46. Egypt is used because that was a place of an antagonism to God, polytheism, and uh, the, the, the complete panorama of their religious system, which was set against God. So uh, the city, though, is correct, uh, his, Historically, geographically identified, though, by the last phrase, where also their Lord was crucified. That is Jerusalem. So they're going to lay their dead bodies out on the street so that everybody can watch. And, of course, today with the Internet, everybody's got a little, uh, got a cell phone that can take pictures and pass them around the world, satellites, everything else. Then everybody will in the whole world can look on their bodies lying in state, much as we've seen with many funerals in the last uh the last 40 years or so. So that in verse 9 we read, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. That's a height of disrespect. They're just going to be laid out there to the elements. And those who dwell on the earth, that is those who are set against God, who will never turn to God, never respond to the gospel, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They are going to have a tremendous Mardi Gras-type party all over the earth because these two witnesses are dead. But note, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. I would love to watch that. They will be just scared to death. These two guys who've been breathing fire against them and bringing all these plagues are suddenly going to come back to life. And those who are around them taunting them and celebrating will scare them to death. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. Then they go into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watch them. So they're going to watch them all the way up. It'll be filmed on CNN, ABC, CBS, and all of the other channels. And then... In that hour, there was a great earthquake. So there's going to be another humongous earthquake in Jerusalem. That's where we're talking about, not the whole earth, in Jerusalem. And a tenth of the city falls. So it's going to destroy 10% of Jerusalem, and it's really spread out. It's a large city. 7,000 people are being killed. Now, when you have a population of two or three, I don't know what it is now, but it's about maybe 500,000, 600,000. So 7,000 is... That's not a big percentage of people that are killed. 7,000 are killed, but look at what happened. The rest are terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. This is when the vast majority of Jews are saved. They give glory to the God of heaven. Now, this has to be right near the midpoint of the tribulation because the next thing that's going to happen is the, is the Antichrist is going to come in desecrate the temple, and these now saved Jews from Jerusalem are going to know what Jesus said, and they are going to head to the hills, the latter part of Matthew 24, that he said, when you see these things, head to the mountains. Don't stop. Don't go back for anything. Just leave, depart. 
And then we're told in verse 14, the second woe is past. The second woe, this, this ties it chronologically. This ends at the same time the second, or, or the, 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 uh, excuse me, the sixth trumpet judgment ends. Midpoint of the tribulation, behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So, we've tied that together. Next time we'll come back and look at the heavenly scene that we shift to in verse 15. Father, we're thankful that we can look ahead and see the future events as if they have already occurred historically and that all of this reinforces for us that no matter how uh, chaotic our world may appear as it did to the Jews in the Old Testament and many people in the church during the early years of the church, things look chaotic for us today, but we know you're in control and you're working your plan out and so we can relax and trust you. We're thankful for the fact that Jesus Christ controls history and that he's coming back, and we look forward to that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.